Hi, friends, and welcome to Consortio Day. My name is John Chandler, and I am training to be a spiritual director after 25 years in ministry uh, and nonprofits. And I'm looking forward to walking alongside others who are in some of those same kind of roles now for this next season. This podcast is a companion. It is conversations with people who do what I call sacred work, learning about their rhythms, learning about their own habits for how they partner with God. And that's that's my very rough translation of Consortio Day, partnering with God after having no Latin classes in my life ever. My guest today is Owen Brock. Owen is a spiritual director and also a photographer and visual designer. I've gotten to know Owen because he is actually one of the teachers in the cohort I am taking through Sustainable Faith to learn how to do spiritual direction. And I thought it'd be good to get the voice of a spiritual director, and I'm sure he will not be the last, but wanted to hear about his own rhythms. I've appreciated, uh, as I've listened to him and sat with him uh, in our cohort, just his own intentionality. And you will see very much how that comes through, how someone who identifies as an Enneagram 5, like I do as well, has been very deliberate in his own, um, what, what I would say, holistic growth, just really not just embracing the curiosity intellectually of an Enneagram 5, but also the growth of heart, growth of soul, and even um, growth of engaging with his body. So I am excited for you to hear and, and proud to be able to have this opportunity to share with you this conversation with Owen Brock. Owen, uh, let's start right out here. And why don't you just tell us about the context of your sacred work? What is the work you do? Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't. I somehow I think about it maybe differently than that. I, I I've gotten to a place in life that I feel like all of it is sacred in some ways, and the places that I my hand, heart, and head land are several different arenas. Uh, I'm a visual designer by trade, and I still do some of that work. But I knew ten years ago it was going to become less and less, and so. Uh, right now, probably about sixty percent of my time maybe closer to 70% of the time is in a spiritual direction world. I either am offering direction to people or I am training spiritual directors through an organization called Sustainable Faith, which you will know. And, uh, I certainly will. And, uh, and then I still do some design work uh, for both uh, a lot of nonprofit organizations plus some international corporate ones as well, but it's becoming less and less of my work. I probably – will retire much of that work in this next year or so. Oh, okay. And has that always been the goal for you, to slowly do more and more in the spiritual direction world? Well, if you have time, I'll just say the, the I way got, I, I got time. Okay, good. The, the way I got into this work might be helpful. Um, I, I had... My, my wife and I both became Christians in Europe and a, 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 kind of the upside-down crazy conversion experiences. I was traveling the hippie trail through Europe and Asia. Uh, I was in Afghanistan when I was, was I 18, 19 maybe, um, and came back to Europe, uh, gave my life to Christ in Finland of all places, on, on the, pretty much on the way back home to Canada. 
And in those days, we, we joke about it now, but we just were convinced Jesus was coming back in a couple of weeks. Sure. I, I mean, I, I say that kind of jokingly, but we thought his return was imminent. It, it, we had no explanation for why these drug-addled hippie travelers, wanderers, were suddenly of importance to God in some ways. And, and for the first year, the church kind of kept their hands off of us because they didn't know what to do with us. And so we just read the scriptures. I, I, I fell asleep in Finland in midsummer at four in the morning, staying up all night reading the scriptures. It, just, it was just a wild kind of experience. And so at that point, I always saw myself doing some kind of missionary type work. Uh, we eventually, I'm making this story short, but eventually my wife and I helped uh, start a community. We are part of a community in Europe. We're, we ended up starting a community in the United States and Oregon, uh, moved some of that community to Cincinnati. But in the process of that, uh, uh, we, we traveled internationally with a music a band. Um, and But in the process, when all that was beginning to wind down, I was in Cincinnati that had one of the best design schools in the nation. And so mm-hmm. I signed up, took my training there. And the, the work of design work, the visual design work, oftentimes ended up a lot feeling like it was spiritual direction work. I didn't have language for that at the time because I hadn't yeah. been trained. But I'm often sitting with clients, helping them sort out who they are, what their identity is, yeah. Um, yeah. how they make their way in the world, what, what they value. And so in, in that way, the, the design work oftentimes felt like ministry to me. And I did design work for, I traveled to Africa and Haiti and other places to do that work. So I'm telling you a long story to tell you oh, that at some point after probably after about 25 years into my faith journey, um, maybe a little bit more than that, I I suddenly started to have this experience of um, Jesus would disappear on me. And um, I, I would go for three, four months without really any experience of God whatsoever. And, um, and then eventually Jesus would show back up and I would go, man, I don't know what the heck that was. And, and then I would go for six months, eight months, and then it would happen again. And this happened three or four years in a row. And the very last time, it was a couple years where I just felt no kind of experience of Jesus. And what I felt like, the language I would have put on at the time was that I, uh, I, I was having a faith crisis. Right. And I, I had, I had you know, decades in at this point. And you can imagine it's not a very comfortable thing to talk about at church especially when you're one of the older members of the congregation. And so when Dave Nixon, my good friend Dave Nixon, started an organization called Sustainable Faith, I signed up to his course. I know other people were there to help other people. I was there to help myself. I was lost. And Dave had always been a good person to ask questions. And he and I have been in a men's group for decades together. And so I took the training and I had to go see a spiritual director. And so I went to this retired Lutheran pastor. He said, what brings you here today? And I basically said about as much as I just said to you, these cycles that were going on. And he asked me, tell me what your spiritual rhythms are. And I I said to him, well, I I do spiritual readings usually most mornings. I do some scripture reading. I hadn't been reading as much scripture at that time, but I read a lot of Richard Rohr and Thomas Merton and other books. And I said, um, I'm a part of a, Vineyard congregation here in town. I'm on the pastoral staff. I, I, uh, I'm on the board of trustees. I teach occasionally. Uh, uh, 
uh, I'm part of a men's group. I've been part of a men's group for about 15 years or maybe 10 years at that point. And then it says, and I go to this monastery twice a year for a silent retreat for three or four days. And he literally put his hand up in the air and, and looked at me and says, stop. He says, I don't think you're going to find this language of faith crisis helpful. I, I see somebody who's deeply invested in his spiritual life, but something's not working and you're trying to fix it. And then he said this thing that I'll never forget. He said, you're looking at this as if it's a problem. What if it's not a problem? What if it's an invitation? And I just remember feeling tears come down my face. I had been under this weight for probably three or four years of feeling like uh, my spiritual life was dissipating. And that began well, a 15-year journey with him, but I, I I felt the weight come off my shoulders in that very instant. And he said, I think you're just searching for integrity in your spiritual life, and how can that be a bad thing? And then we just spent some time exploring spiritual more contemplative practices. That uh, And anyway, oh, that's a long story to say. No, so no. at that particular point, there, I think I began to integrate my life in a different way where I I thought less of sacred and secular as much as trying to figure out what what is what is the work that God is calling me to do, and how can I do this well, regardless of whether I'm doing design work or leading person in spiritual direction. It's it's all the same work in some ways. Yeah. So I love that you went there because actually, like, I have kind of my set questions that I work from, but I added a few others for you. Okay. Um, and one of them, what is the relationship between your creative work and the spiritual direction you offer? So you jumped the gun. <laughs> I've already answered this extra question that I've added to it. Yeah. But yeah, I, I appreciate that because there is a, even with what I'm trying to do in this podcast, there's a tension there because I want to know how people, um, what practices and what rhythms people use to sustain the sacred work that they do. But I really appreciate, and I'm, I've already felt this tension as I've talked about it with some other people of the line between quote unquote sacred work and what we might call mundane work or regular work or, you know, is really blurry. And, you know, ideally, um, I would hope all that we do is in some way considered to be sacred work. But yeah. at the same time, I appreciate you naming that. And uh, Well, I have to say that when I, when it, it, as that evolved in my spiritual life, and I would say that that language is purposeful, uh, I remember when I first got to work as a design, in a design firm, I had been off doing missionary work and this band work and all this stuff. And I, the, the thought that kept running through my head that I was terrified of becoming normal. You know, that somehow I had this bifurcation in my life that 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 ministry that I full time ministry that I'd been in before was one thing. And I was settling for working a job, hoping to do some ministry on the side. And I remember my good mentor and my my boss at the time who became a good friend said, so you don't look at this as ministry either. And and I didn't. And it took a while for all of that to kind of settle in my soul in a sweet spot where I realized, you know, there's no, there's no really difference. If you do this work as unto God, it doesn't matter whether you're painting a house, you know, fixing a toilet, you know, doing design work. And a lot of my design work was making people's dreams come alive. They'd come to me with this idea of a business or things like that. And so there was some, there was some definitely connection to the role of helping people fulfill their dreams and, uh, we had my my clients. 
I was not overly religious with my clients, but all my clients knew that I was a believer. Uh, they knew what was important to me. I'd tell them I'm going to be out of town, going to Africa for a few weeks to help with a faith-based AIDS project. They just knew that that's who I was. And I, I didn't feel like I had to broadcast that. And, right, right. Um, as I, in fact, as, as I got more and more spiritual direction training, got more used to that, I found myself oftentimes being invited uh, into um, a corporate design marketing strategy meeting and offering what I would consider oftentimes felt like a lot like spiritual direction. Like, why are we doing this work? Why is this important to us? And I would ask the kind of questions you and I would if we were sitting in front of somebody. What What is your experience of life and why are you doing what you're doing? And it took on, I think, a, I believe it took on a beautiful quality for my clients to be asked questions that were more an inner kind of work before we addressed the things that needed fixing. Yeah. Yeah, I run, I run into that even with building websites because I often, um, I, I, I kind of have to lean in when I'm asking people who are wanting a website, you know, what do they really need me for? Because sometimes they already have it designed and all that, and they just need somebody to come and hook up all this code. But sometimes somebody reaches out to me and I discover, oh, you need a lot more than somebody to come and hook up all this code. You need, you don't even know what you want this website to accomplish or what yeah. this website to do because you don't know what you're trying to communicate. So mm-hmm. I, I get what you're saying there. So I'm curious, how many, and I'm going to circle this back to what you were just saying, but what percentage of the people that you do spiritual direction for or offer spiritual direction to are in uh, what I'll classify as some kind of full-time ministry, like mm-hmm. in a church setting or something like that. So let me think about this. I'm, I'm currently meeting, because I'm teaching classes, I kind of try not to be overloaded with directives, but I probably see, I would say, 15 to 17 people a month. You know, you lose a few and then a few sure. more enter back in. And um, I have a, n- a number of pastors, uh, I would say, I would say probably at least half of the people I work with are pastors. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking in my head here. Um, I have one woman that works as a school teacher, but she's also um, on on a um, on a staff of a, a national missions organization. Um, a woman that's Episcopal priest. I would I would I would say probably sixty percent of the people are probably in ministry, and other people, a guy who's a runs a hospital in in a big city in the U.S. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think. And and a, a number of uh, even interestingly enough, some younger people um, who are trying to. I got different kind of people. I got pastors who are trying to be faithful to God in the ministry, sure. and they have no place to really share their deep inner heart with. Yes, yeah. And so I have those people, and and some of them are going through some difficult times in their faith journey. And I got younger people who are trying to sh- sort out this kind of postmodern deconstruction thing and don't know what they believe anymore. And because I've been through some of this angst myself, I, I feel like I'm a pretty good and patient listener in that regard. So I, I get kind of a little bit of both of those things. Yeah. When I th- uh, part of the reason I ask that question is yeah, you've spent time. It sounds like it's fair to say you've spent seasons in your life where you were, you know, full time in terms of a job doing ministry and seasons yeah. where you were almost by vocation or full time, not in ministry. And I know that, you know, I spent the first 
I spent the first 15, 20 years of my professional life in full-time ministry and churches. And then I transitioned into a season of doing split where I worked part-time church planting and part-time doing website development. Um, And I feel like I was a better pastor when Mm -hmm. I was also working part-time as a web developer, because there was something about the quote unquote normal day-to-day kind of interactions that I was having with people um, that informed how I was able to pastor. Mm -hmm. And so, especially because a lot of the people that might be listening to this podcast might be doing full-time ministry. I wonder what you, what words you might have or what you might say about what it would look like to be doing that kind of work, but still try to engage. I, I'm, I'm trying to form this question as I go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know from the questions I ask in our cohort that I often have to blurt out my questions as I go and form them. That's all right. I'm married <laughs> to one of or, those. <laughs> for podcast listeners. Um, but I, I wonder what you would say to somebody who's in full-time ministry about what practices might look like for them or what things you might have learned to help them be more engaged in the non-sacred, the more, you know, the mundane, to have real life interactions with people beyond the bounds of um, the structures of church and the structures of faith. So I'll tell you a story. Did you get a question out of that? Yeah, I did. I'll tell you a story. It's like you set me up for this. But uh, so, so one of my directees is a pastor uh, who uh, is bivocational, but he's planning churches. He's, working at homeless shelters. I mean, he's really, he's probably, you know, if you had to divide us up, 80% of his time is involved in full-time ministry of some kind or another. Yeah. So he he was worried about this question himself. He said, why am I expecting people to come to our church? Why, what, where do I? And somehow he saw an ad for a karaoke bar. And this guy is also an idiot type five, so you'll appreciate this. So he picked up of a buddy of his and, said, hey, we're going to just go to this karaoke bar. His buddy thought, oh, yeah, so-and-so's being, I'll just call him Joe. Joe's just being funny. And um, they got about a couple blocks from this. He says, oh, where are we really going? And Joe said, oh, we're, we're going to a karaoke bar. And and so they went to the, the guy says, you've got to be kidding. You, this, you're not the person I would expect this to have happen. So they they went there, and um, this friend of mine, Joe, he, he loves a good bourbon, so he had a bourbon, and People got up and seen he was observing all of this thing going on. And he said it was remarkable, the sense of community that was in this place. And all he could figure out is that people were being vulnerable and people applauded that vulnerability. So he got up to sing a song. I I asked him, of course, what what song did you sing? And he told me. And he said the most amazing thing is people cheered. They sang along. He got off the stage. They said, what a great job, buddy. They were high-fiving him. And so he came back the next week with his wife, and they said, hey, Joe, you know, and, and uh, I remember you. Thanks for coming back. And he, goes, this is, and he says, it was amazing how many friends in a very short period of time he made by entering into this community and doing what they were doing in the way that they were building community. And I found that remarkable. I, I found it remarkably spiritual that he would enter into a world that was not his, you know, he's a fairly introverted and he type five and he made his way into that world and he made a whole bunch of new friends and they, they somehow over the conversations developed, know that he's a believer and he's, he's just 
becoming friends with people in an environment that was way outside of church. So, and there's something healthy about identifying with people in some way other than role of pastor or yeah. yeah. He was out of his element, which was yeah. a good thing for. I, I'm, I guess that's one of the things I, I think that is healthy for people in full time ministry is to find themselves out of their element sometimes and uh, just finding what it's like to feel um, disease with um, with what they know, that the things that they know are, of course, of some eternal value, but in a particular moment, they might not be that valuable to the people that he's with and what does it look like to share his life in some way. Yeah. Well, let's go back to your journey, Wait, because you described it was this problem to be solved, very Enneagram yeah. 5 of you, yeah. if I may say so myself. <laughs> I didn't know the Enneagram at the time, but I, I, I hear you. Um, but, but, and instead, you know, this director told you, well, maybe there's an invitation in that. And so I, I wonder what, if we can go back and pick up from there, what is, yeah. what does your journey look like since then? Do you still have these dry seasons or have you found practices that are better engagement for you? What, what is, what does that journey look like now? Well, that feels like two questions. So let me answer it All in right. two parts. So um, <laughs> the first thing that happened is I had been going to this monastery for years and I would go in and sing with the Benedictine monks, or Trappist monks, Benedictines. But and I would, I would spend a great deal of time in the forest. They had about fifteen hundred acres, and I was running in those days. And I would go either hiking or trail running. And the experience of being outdoors had always been good for me. I, I don't know quite how to say it, but um, I would find myself walking or running through the forest sometimes with my hands just held open, saying, "Here I am, God. Whatever." you know, whatever you have for me. And it wasn't until I I read a quote from Merton actually at the monastery where he lived, which is really quite a fun deal, um, where he talked about the, the medievals described nature as the other book about God. Some people sometimes call it the big book about God, but um, that it suddenly resonated with me that that was something that was good for my soul and in some ways uh, as I began to shift in my thinking uh, uh, to more contemplative practices, um, I realized um, that my vocabulary for prayer was very limited in the first couple of decades of my life. I had a particular way of praying. Um, it was often needs-list. Even my, my work, any work at intercession were often needs-list. And um, I was always repenting for something. Yeah. yeah. You know, just uh, to feel feel lesser than, feel maybe like I was disappointing God. Um, and I was working really hard for God, but I always felt like, uh, well, it came clear to me one day, a dear friend, uh, a, a woman who was 20 years older than me, I won't go into the context, I was meeting with her as a, uh, she was doing some consulting for our community. She, she looked at me and she said, Owen, if you never do another thing for God, you've done enough. Hmm. And I thought, Man, I don't even know what that means. I, I mean, I, I heard her, landed in my head. Um, so years later now, when this faith crisis is happening in my life, I, I began to get the sense of what this lovely woman was telling me. It's not that I don't do things for God, but I don't need to do things for God to win his approval, that I already have his approval, that he'd still, he loves me. And so I was able to then... I think give myself permission, which 
most self-care and soul care is about permission giving. At some level, you say, I've done enough today. I've done enough this week, this month. Yeah. What would yeah. it look like to take some time and just be? And this is what the sister Brockman had said to me. You need to learn just how to be. And so that, that decade or so helped integrate the idea of being and doing, that they each had their role. She wasn't saying to me, don't do anything, but she just said, don't do it from those motives. And I think that that is true. And so as I started to lean into more contemporary practices like Lectio Divina, Centering Prayer, um, I began to also deeply value the work time that I spent outdoors. My wife and I started hiking a lot more and did a 100-mile backpacking trip. I have a book on my bookshelf that I would love to read that's called Backpacking with the Saints. It's this integration and believing that in my time outdoors with God, I am in the presence of creation, and that matters. It matters to yeah. God. It matters to me. And so things that I was doing before that I – I don't know what the right language would be – that I thought, well, they don't, these don't really count as prayer. I suddenly – it became clear to me that I really just didn't know what prayer was about, that, that the many things now I would say that at the time I wrote out this not being prayer – I would count now as being in the presence of God and his activity in my life in ways. Um, like, for example, we didn't, we were saving the world. We are turning the world upside down. Yeah, Jesus was yeah. coming back soon. Hobbies. Who's got time for hobbies? Yeah. You know, and then I'd run into a woodworker that was crafting beautiful pieces of wood and furniture. I thought, oh, my God, this is, this is, this is like a spiritual practice. This is the time when he's let go in phone calls, his work, his bills to be paid, his home repairs. He's working with his hands with this beautiful wood that God created, and he's doing it with some intention and passion. Oh, this is actually a, an activity that can draw a person, center them in a beautiful way with God. And I didn't have language for that. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess that's a long question, answer to your question, but I began to now include things in my life as being a spiritual practice that I would have never, ever thought counted before. And I, it's, it's made a significant difference in my life. The, the second answer is, yes, I still have. I have times when um, when the shifts occur where I don't feel that close to God in that way. But the practice of centering prayer, of sitting in silence, of Lectio Divina that I do routinely now, I, I believe they carry me through those seasons. Yeah. Um, there's this, I don't know if you've ever read this. I thought about our interview today, and I, I spoke at church yesterday. And I read this poem by Denise Levertov, and it talks to this exact issue. She mm -hmm. says, days pass when I forget the mystery. Problems insoluble and problems offering their own ignored solutions jostle for my attention. They crowd its antechamber along with a host of diversions. My courtiers wearing their colored clothes, caps and bells. And then once more, the quiet mystery is present to me. The throngs clamor, recedes the mystery that is that there is anything, anything at all, let alone cosmos, joy, memory, everything rather than void. And that, O oh Lord, creator, hallowed one, you still hour by hour sustain it. And I, I think Denise is just talking to this fact that we nobody's on top of it all the time. And what do we place in our life that is, if you can think of it like guardrails at the bowling alley, when you're learning how to bowl, you know, they, they put those little tubes in the gutters so you don't fall off. Well, spiritual practices, I don't, 
you know, Dallas Willard would say that they, they don't make us righteous, but they bring us before the one who makes us righteous. And so the spiritual practices that I now have, uh, first of all, they eliminated a great portion of whatever that cycle was I had in my life that no longer occurs. If it does it no longer occurs, it occurs, it might, it might be momentarily. I think there's times in my day that I become an agnostic for 20 minutes, you know, <laughs> I, I scrape my knuckles while I'm trying to install a washer or dryer. And I think, what the heck, God, what is this all about? And, yeah. and you have the sense of lostness for a moment. And then you just gradually have a gracious response to yourself in, um, I would say the other thing that I now do that I never knew how to do earlier is I've learned how to offer myself spiritual direction. Hmm. And when I when I become discouraged or feel like some slightly out of place, I'm able to stop long enough and say, Owen, what's going on down in there in your soul? What what is what is not feeling right? What is what is this angst that you feel right now or disappointment? What is this? And I'm able to really have a conversation with myself and be able to kind of um, interrogate the wrong word, but investigate these feelings and name them before they would just be, I'd be blue and I'd have this kind of blue amorphous kind of feeling. But now I'm able to just sit with myself and say, what is this? And God, I believe, will help me name it. And then the difference is that I can take the thing that's named and I can offer it up to God. And God can help me with it. Before, when it was just an amoeba of blueness, how do I offer that to God? I don't even know what it is. So I think this practice of spiritual direction has come in super helpful for me in kind of managing my own times when I feel like the wheels are spinning a bit and I'm not exactly where I would like to be. I'm able to sit quiet enough. I know now what questions to ask myself in them. So how do you know when you need to do that? What, what gives you enough self-awareness or what clues you in of, I need to take some moments here? Uh, I think that's a really great question. How, how, do you, um, how do you know when you're not doing well? Yeah. Well, pretty much, uh, yeah. <laughs> I said it. I asked it more graciously than that. Yeah. No, but I, I, I thought it was a here's, – here's the, the markers for me, and I'll tell you – what I, how I know, and then we've discussed a little bit what I think I do at this point. Um, I can feel when I'm not my best self. I had a friend and I was going to, uh, uh, a good friend of mine, I was going through a conflict with another person, family member of sorts. And, um, and I remember him saying to me one day, what would it be like if your best self showed up to the next conversation with him? And I thought, man, what a great, plumb line to enter into that conversation with. And so when I, when I go off the rails a bit, when I know I'm not doing well, one of the things is I know that I'm not my best self. And I know the, one of the ways I notice this is I'm not as kind and gracious to those that I love. Yeah. Um, the people closest to me, I might get a bit more nitpicky. I'm, I might get a little bit more short tempered and I'm not a person with a great deal of temper my wife and I have been married, wow, next month will be 46 years. Yeah. So, and we very seldom fight, but, but I, I notice when I can get a bit cranky or short with her. And it's one of the first kind of markers that I think, oh, hmm. So any types tend to get in their head and I, I, I tend to um, 
maybe compulsively try and figure things out, like what, what's going on. I try to compulsively. And this goes back to that problem-solving orientation. And one of the things, uh, it, I believe for any type fives, it's a bit of an effort to kind of control our lives um, in some ways. Um, I would say that I also another thing I would I would typically lean into the unhealthy part of the seven. It's an extra glass of wine. It's an extra show. Staying up too late at night. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, doing things that I that they're they're fine. I don't have any religious obligations to either one of those things, but I, I know that I, I can feel myself escaping. Right. And. So, yeah, the thing is to, to get back on track is really just begin to lean into the practices that I know carry me well. And I begin, I begin to sense it. And we, we do, after a while, we, we begin to know ourselves in ways that we just didn't know when we were younger. And we can then step in and kind of begin to do the things that we what, – what uh, uh, Susan Scott has this uh, – in her, in her book, Fierce Conversations, has this thing – one of her questions for her clients is, what are you pretending not to know? And so my, my wife and I will, will joke with one another, what are we currently yeah. pretending not to know? Oh, I need to probably be doing less and slow down a bit. So, so you mentioned getting back into your, your practices. What, what, is your, what is your rhythm, so to speak, look like of practices you engage, maybe daily or yeah. weekly, monthly? I, I tend to have... I tend to operate with kind of more of a menu of choices. I think if I had to say my defaults are usually a centering prayer, and um, I really am fond of the Lectio Divina practice, but most of the time it's using um, the Pray As You Go app by the Ignatians over there in Britain. I love hearing scripture in a yeah. British accent. I just sure, there's yeah. something Anything really, in a British accent, sure. Yeah. It is so sweet. Um, and I find... Um, I find those are probably the two main things that happen. They don't happen every day. Sometimes I'll do one. Sometimes I do the other. Sometimes I'll do both. Sometimes I have a sweet moment at um, in centering prayer, and I find myself after after my time is up, I find myself just lingering in that quietness and find it's really a, a superb time to offer prayers up for my family or things that concern me. What I kind of would have called more kind of intercessory prayers. And I, I don't do that all the time, but, but one, of, one of the reasons I think it works for me is that I, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm coming to God with a laundry list, like, can you help me take care of this? It's more like, God, thank you for this quietness and this time together. I feel in his presence. And he, I said, these are the things I'm carrying right now. And um, would you help me know how to carry them? And it just feels a little bit more relationship-oriented to me. Um, I also... Um, I see a spiritual director once a month. That's a way we, we talk. I had a recent experience with my director. Uh, you know, I, I tend to, when I go to see my spiritual director, I tend to do a couple of days of reflection that are more intentional ahead of time. I kind of take a um, kind of an examine of the last month or so since I've seen him. And this couple of months ago, I went to, was going to him and I, I'd made my list, but I have a 10 minute drive and I hadn't seen him for a couple of months. And I thought, Gosh, I don't know what this list even means. I, I don't know. Here, here's my list of things that I've been doing or carrying or whatever, but I don't know. I don't know what the connections are. And in the ten-minute drive to his house, God gave me a picture of a river, and I felt this sense of that I was 
caught up in, in a river of time and that God was, that many of these things were actually small little things that were adding up to a, a plan and a vision that my wife and I had for about 10 years of eventually spending more time in the Pacific Northwest. And I suddenly realized that all these things that I was wrestling with, the work on the house, just numerous other things that were all part of this plan that we had really been pulling on for 10 years. And I felt, I don't know another way to say it other than I felt like that God was holding us with in a very graceful way that we were being held as, as time was moving forward. And I thought, so by the time I got to my spiritual director's, I was able to kind of lay all this out, both the list, but also kind of the work. And no, it's not, and you, I know you know this, it's not a spiritual director's job to figure this out for me, sure, but to companion sure. me. So part of, I was able to offer him what I was seeing. The hilarious part of this is a month later, I went to see him again, and uh, I was feeling angst. And gosh, why is it taking so long for all these things to take place? And this is part of my sermon at church on Sunday is, I wish I could tell you I always had my life together and I was always a person of great faith and insight, but most of us are not. You know, most of us get glimpses and we see things and then we then just like centering prayer, which I often call returning prayer, we have to return to God again and again and again. So um and you you also mentioned backpacking with the saints, which is Belden Lane, and I haven't read that. I've read some of his other stuff. Um but I know just from, you know, other interactions with you that you love hiking. I think yeah. you're only going to the Pacific Northwest to hike a lot, is my impression. Um, well, I do have some family there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair. Uh, but I'm curious what you would say about hiking as a spiritual practice. Oh, boy. It, it is probably one of the things that gives me the greatest joy. I, I love being outdoors. I love There's something I love about pushing myself a little bit, and I, it may be because of my age. Uh, um, when we go to Canada, we have more time. I work about half the hours I work normally. My wife, who is a bit, bit of a retiring massage therapist at this point after a couple of decades, she doesn't take her clients with her, so she, she gets more time. And so every morning we start with the five-mile walk, and we walk along the ocean. We walk two and a half miles to a coffee shop. We have coffee. She has coffee. I have tea. We usually split a scone, and we stare at the ocean and the, the mountains, Olympic mountain range. Yeah. And I, John, I, I can't tell you. It is my wife will say to you, Owen becomes a different person when he's there. He's like the nostalgia, the, the fact that I can look across – 10 miles of ocean and no telephone lines, no cars. I can see the ocean. I can smell the ocean. My senses come alive. Usually when we get to Victoria, I tear up multiple times in the first few days I'm there. I just miss it so much. And so when we go hiking, um, what happened was during the pandemic, we've done lots of hiking, but during the pandemic, um, and we weren't able to go to Canada that year, first time in 30 years. Wow. Um, I had a conversation with my spiritual director, and I said to him, I'm going to start walking every day here. We, we would walk 15 miles a week here, 15 or 20. In Victoria, we'd sometimes walk 50, 60 miles a week. Yeah. And, and so 
we just decided we were going to walk about an hour and a half every day during the pandemic and allow whatever that thing that happens in the Pacific Northwest, the outdoor time. Um, and I want to say something else about my wife and I's conversation. We just would let that be a plumb line for us living our life here. I'm older now and I, I can give myself permission to not race to the work that needs to be done. And so for about 14 months, the pandemic, uh, we walked, we averaged six miles a day. And one of the fruits of this for me was both a sense of centeredness. But the other thing is, is my wife and I began to do kind of an informal daily exam with one another. The first 20 minutes or so of our walk, we would just be quiet. And then we, we would begin to talk about, we would do our examine about the day before or the week. And we would begin to process the questions we were carrying, where we were frustrated what we were trying to offer to God. And uh, it was, it's a lovely thing to have um, that much time with a person you love and be able to kind of process. It's amazing how prophylactic that is to process things that are going on in your life. Or, you know, you said this thing the other day that kind of disappointed me in some particular way or hurt me and just able in a very natural way while you're walking process this out. So I think all of this outdoor time has has always been really good for me and my wife who used to spend her summers getting a suntan on the beach in New Jersey while I was out backpacking and she's come into my world a little bit. And so it's been, it's been a beautiful thing for us. Yeah. All right. Thank you. I knew you'd have something to say about hiking. I didn't prep you for that question. Um, you also, I'll, I'll just ask you a couple more questions here. Uh, I mean, you've alluded to this, but I know, you know, you identify with Enneagram 5, but my experience of you is you're someone who's very connected with and able to express your emotions, um, which is not, you know, often very typical for Enneagram 5. What What is the work that you had to do? And I, I asked this question as a curious Enneagram 5, but I also think this is really important for any Enneagram member. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I just but think it's a little more intentional for you. I wonder what the work I, is that you've done to come to that place. Yeah, I think that, thank you. I think it, the, the word I would put on it was intentional as well. Um, I remember the day, probably around this time when I was trying to resolve this angst that I was feeling about my spiritual life, I was, I was driving to work. And I remember exactly where it happened was an intersection about four blocks from my house that I teared up. And I thought, what just happened? <laughs> yeah. I, I know mean, this I, experience. <laughs> I knew what what physically had happened. Yeah. But because I was, my wife would say <laughs> that I wasn't always in touch with my emotional landscape. My children would say that too. Um, I, I was un. I, I. It was not that I never teared up, but it was the first time when I stopped and said, "Lord, what is this?" What what just happened that produced this sensation in me that moved me emotionally? And I, I, I was driving and I sat and I thought about it. I just heard something on the radio. What was it that I just heard? And it was the first time when I began to, to become intentionally more self-aware about what moved me. Um, my, my wife and I, my, my father, before he passed away, had this, Reader's Digest copy compilation and it was a beautiful story of a young couple who sold everything they had and they moved 
to uh, an island off of Vancouver Island where I go every summer, sold all their house or possessions to try and start a new life there and raise a retreat center. And when I was reading this, my I would tear up. Something caught my heart in a big way. And my wife had noticed it. What are you reading? What's going on? So we would go, because she liked to be in the sun and I didn't so much. Like we would go to the beach sometimes and I would read to her this book for an hour or so. And every time I teared up, my wife would say, what What was that? What what, what caught your attention there? And I'd say, I, I'm not sure I know. But I began the practice of whenever I was moved, I would begin to ask God, what is that? And um, yeah. And what is it that's moving me right now? And what happened, as as you know, is as we become more self-aware, Banner would say the more self-aware we are, uh, the more of ourselves we can bring to God. And uh, suddenly that part of, that emotional part of my life began to be a conversation that God and I would talk about. And that had not been the case before. And so... A while back, it's been a couple of years now, but I spoke at church, and I, I did what we do in our spiritual direction cohorts. I basically told my story uh, of my, my life, how I became a Christian, how the ministry that we've been involved with, the, the way that I've lived my life, how I started my life when I was younger with an alcoholic father, all that stuff. And now people, in the, I've been part of this congregation for 27 years now. People have heard part of my stories because part of my stories come up in teaching. But I'd never like told the story, like 30 minutes of just telling my journey. And I did it the way we do it in our spiritual direction cohorts. We, I tell the story, I told the highlights of my spiritual journey. And then I said to them, please pay attention to my the story because I'm going to ask you questions later. And I, I, I literally asked the congregation, what did you notice about my story? And um, one of the women later told me the, st- the question that came to mind for her is, oh, you always had really long hair because I showed a couple pictures of me when I was younger, yeah. uh, my counterculture phase. Uh, but one of the things that my daughter said, who's part of our congregation, she says, I really appreciate that you and your mom, you and mom are always still learning. Even later in life, you have this desire to learn. And then a really sweet thing happened when it was when it was over. Other people noticed other things. But she came up to me and she said, Dad, one of the other things that I've noticed is that you're more, much more in touch with your feelings now than you ever were when we, the children were younger, when we were younger. Yeah. And, and I, I just can assume that that's out of the good work that you've been doing and about paying attention. I wish I could tell you I'm always aware of my feelings. Sometimes my wife, who's very sensate, She's a and you type two and an Italian a feeler. She'll sometimes say to me something like, "You know, your daughter needs a hug," and I'll go, "Okay, I trust you." <laughs> yeah, but, but I am. I would say I'm significantly more aware. In fact, even in our cohorts, when I run into an any type five, and we we have a number, and some of them are so out of touch with their feelings, I think to myself, and this might not sound bad, but I think, "Oh Lord." I don't feel that way anymore. I don't feel like my feelings are either I'm unaware of them or they're the enemy. Um, Dallas Willard has a lovely saying about feelings and emotions. He says they make wonderful servants but terrible masters. And I think we've not done a good job in the church of making the distinctions between that. Yeah. I think sometimes we say, well, the heart's deceitfully wicked. Who can trust it? 
oh my God, well, if Jesus has been living in my heart for 30 years, I hope there's something in there that can be trusted. Yeah. And But the idea that our hearts are actually an unfiltered way of knowing, that they, they bring to us things that we might rationalize away, but they come unfiltered. Then we have to engage in our brains sometimes to tell us, what do we do with these things that our heart is telling us that we now know? We might need an action plan to say, oh, I need to go apologize to somebody, or I need to step back from this responsibility because my heart is telling me I'm grieving or something like that. But So in a perfect world, our heart is a huge asset to us. But if, if the only thing we have is our heart and we never engage our intellect or or our thinking, then what happens is we, we can become emotionally kind of driven. And that's not the right answer either. It's this sure, integration sure. of our heart and our, our mind. Yeah. I think though that we've um, worked so hard in the, I don't know if it's fair to say Western church event. I don't know what labels to put on it, but my church experience, <laughs> you know, we've worked so hard to try to suppress or limit those emotions yeah. that it's, it's good to see that that is shifting, I think, in a lot of ways. And, and there is it, a place for balance, absolutely. Yeah. And part of it comes out of uh, what we really want there is health. Right? We want healthy access to both our intellect and understanding from our mind. We want our mind renewed. But we also want Jesus was moved to tears numerous times in the biblical story. He's moved to joy with children. And you cannot have it both ways. You cannot bottle your feelings and emotions up and park them on a bench someplace and expect to have joy or deep personal relationships with other human beings. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. And um, so I, I think that the, the it's probably part of the pa- patriarchal world that we've lived in where, where men have been, or generally tend to be more drift towards doing rather than feeling. I think that the, the, the voice of women and the church has been sadly missing. Um, part of my teaching uh, yesterday was, oddly enough, uh, pray as you go. They did the genealogy of um, uh, the first chapter of Matthew, and there's those five women that are mentioned. And I just did a little bit of a study on Tamar and uh, uh, Rahab, Ruth, uh, the woman that was described only as Hittite's wife that we call Bathsheba. And then marry and think, what all these normal women that are, were either very in troubled parts of their life or were marginalized or whatever, here they have this lineage of Christ. Maybe we ought to give a little bit more thought to the role that women and uh, that our, our healed hearts can play in help guiding the church. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you. All right, well, one last question. In, in a lot of ways, you've, you you might want to just put an exclamation mark on something you've already said, or maybe you have something else you want to add here. But what what do you understand now in the work that you do? I won't describe it as sacred work. What do you understand now that you wish you understood when you were starting out? Boy, can we get an adult beverage and go sit someplace and, and talk the whole night? Um, I mean, I just have decaf coffee right now. Yeah, it's but, three in the afternoon. Um, <laughs> let, let me just let me just say a few things about this. When I was twenty, I said out loud more than once, "I want them to write on my tombstone that he lived with no regrets." Mm. Only a twenty-year-old can say that. 
Yeah. You know, when I when I say that to my spiritual director, we both have a good chortle and laugh a little bit. Of course, we have regrets, but you know, it's laughable. But um, the Jesus movement, we were very task oriented. That's where I landed when I was young. Um, I mentioned this Jesus. We thought what Jesus' return was imminent. We had no explanation for our salvation that Jesus was choosing these ragged counterculture types. Um, but somehow saving the world become like was a major focus and it was a complete disregard for self-care, um, for wholeness, uh, for the long obedience in the same direction. We, we, we didn't, it was a sprint. We didn't know what a marathon looked like. I've run a couple marathons and yeah. I know it's a different pace. It's a different work. Um, had no idea about the integration of life, how the, the head and the heart need to come together. Um, there's a, there was a lovely thing that uh, a gentleman, I don't know why, Phil Strout just stepped down from leading the Vineyard Church nationally, he and his wife. And Sandy and I were staffing, helping staff a regional vineyard conference in Seattle probably eight, nine years ago. And Phil Strout said, that the Vineyard Church has always been about um, a healthy church movement. It, it's about the experience of God and healthy church movement. And we wanted to be more than just planning a church. We, we wanted this kind of healthy movement. He says, how do you have a healthy church movement? He says, you have it by having healthy churches. How do you have healthy churches? You have it by having a healthy congregation. How do you have a healthy congregation? You have healthy pastors. Yeah. And then he said that the, the, the Vineyard Church has always been about this charismatic experience of Christ in our life, demonstrative experience. And, and that's how I, I got saved. He says, but we have to think of the contemplative life as the charismatic life slowed down. We still want experience of Jesus. We still want that indwelling of the Spirit. We still want the guidance. We we still want that, that word of wisdom or knowledge to come to us, but we're not in as much of a hurry. Um, and we give ourselves permission to say that when I, as a pastor, take care of myself and say no to some obligations and don't spend 80 hours in the church, when I do that, I'm setting not only a healthy standard for my own life, that the Spirit of Christ can work through in a much better way, but I'm also setting an example for my congregation. This is what it means to live a marathon, a spiritual life in its entirety over or the course of our entire life. And um, it's what it means to think of God when the first half of my life, I thought of God as being mostly external. I, I now believe that God is both transcendent. He is external, but he's also lives within me. He's imminent in, in my inner being. How do I take care and nurture that? Yeah. And uh, and I've also, I'd say the last thing um, that I have learned to deeply value my longings. Uh, when I was younger, uh, because my heart was deceitfully wicked, um, my heart was untrustworthy. And I have deeply begun to believe that when we've, when we've gone through boot camp, when we've gone through that discipleship phase where we're, our nose is to the grindstone in some ways, that what is left after that, what emerges is th these deeply 
deep longings within us. And those are the place that Frederick Buechner, uh, Parker Palmer would all say is where our calling exists. It's the intersection of the world's needs and our deepest longings. And if we don't know what those deepest longings are, it's going to be really hard to know what we should be attending to in our life. And we often will run around shooting off buckshot everywhere, hoping to hit something that's magical. I think what I now know is that when I attend to my deepest longings, I'm going to be living in the place where God has called me and not um, trying to do more than what I'm called to. And I'm also able to find I'm able to find joy in simple things that I would have at one time maybe before would have bored me because I'm just giving them my fullest attention and believing that what I'm giving my full attention to actually matters to God. Mm. Thank you. Appreciate that. I mean, that was a pretty good answer for not having any adult beverages, but I'd, I'd be glad to explore that more at some point uh, when we could do that with adult beverages. Right? Yeah. Well, these are the things that we just don't know when we're, we're younger. And um, this, this thing that's become really meaningful to me is um, this paying attention to my human life. Um, Benner talks a lot about this. Um, um, uh, what's her name, Barbara? Uh, Barbara Brown, Brown Taylor. Taylor. Yeah, she's she she just says the thing. I don't know what the exact quote. I could probably find it for you, but she says the thing that's lit, lighting up her spiritual life right now is to pay the utmost attention, the utmost attention she can give him to the ordinary things that she's doing in her life, and believe that that honors God in the ordinary. And that there is, as she will say, like Benner says, that there is no authentic spiritual life without an authentic human life. And so this understanding that God's both God's movement within me, but also how I'm responding to what God is doing in me, how I'm responding to the world around me. The kindness that I displayed to my wife um, about an area that there might be tension is in fact my spiritual life. Yeah. You know, and uh, when I stop segregating those into little compartments and integrate those things that the way I live out my human life is the, is the, uh, the way that I express the spiritual work that God has done in my life. And when all those things come together, I would have never known that in the first decades of my spiritual life, but it, it is the thing that is becoming more and more and most real and most important to me. Yeah. This juncture one. Well, I appreciate something that you said in the middle that I don't want to use it to summarize everything you've said, but I feel like it's really critical, which is um, to be self-aware is to give yourself permission. Mm-hmm. Or you said something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, I just really appreciate that, you know, the, the sense of. Well, so I, much think, I think self-care is a matter of permission and self-care comes from self-awareness. It's go. the question you ask, how do you know when you're not doing well? Yeah. And if we're not self-aware, we'll never get to self-care. And if we're not willing to give ourselves permission, we'll never never remedy the, the disparity or the gap which we, we feel we're experiencing between the way that we are and the way that we would love to be. So, All right. 
Well, Owen, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time. I, I know that you just had an agnostic experience right before this of installing a washer and dryer. So I know that that was, I have not, a sore a back. Random, that was not a random metaphor you threw out in the middle of this. So I appreciate you um, re-engaging I'm, out of your agnosticism. I'm too. standing on the stairs and I'm trying to pull the washer up the stairs and my grandson who's 16 and stronger than I am. He's pushing in the bottom. I thought, you know, we've got this wrong. You should be yeah. pulling. I should be pushing. And I have a little bit of a sore back to say. So yes, God in the midst of all our misjudgments. <laughs> well, bless you, friend. I look forward to seeing you here in the next few weeks. In our right. class. Thank you. Thank you. All right.